Welcome to The Colour Green, a podcast exploring the connections between race, the environment and social justice. My name is Lola Young and I'm an independent crossbench peer in the House of Lords, but also incredibly interested in this area of work. So, in each episode, I speak to an artist, activist or creative professional who's worked at the intersection of culture and climate to find out more about their work and their relationship with the environment. This podcast is brought to you by Julie's Bicycle, a London-based charity that supports and empowers the creative community to act on climate change and environmental sustainability. In this episode, I'm joined by Kareem Days, a musician with United Vibrations and founder and chair of Community Land Trust Rural Urban Synthesis Society. Lola here again and I'm lucky enough to be with Kareem and although it is a cold winter's day it's actually rather nice we're out in the open on one tree hill Kareem why did you choose this spot yes yeah, it's, it's a very special spot for me I mean I grew up just across the road so I kind of always lived next to this forest and I guess whenever I go traveling or I go around London wherever I come I always come back here I've always felt like the trees in this area have always kind of grounded me. I always have to walk up a hill, always come home, and just, just I don't know, it's just it's home. So. Is part of it being able to see a good part of London spread out before you, or is that kind of an annoyance, a distraction? How does that work in the overall picture? Because what you've got, you know, you're surrounded by quote unquote nature, yeah. and then there's human intervention on, yeah, the, on yeah, a yeah, huge yeah. scale yeah, there. Yeah. Always perspective. So I think actually coming up here, always always kind of gives me that perspective and yeah you're surrounded by the trees and nature then you see kind of the built environment London and all its glory or, or not depending on how you see it and so yeah that gives you perspective you spent all day commuting in the city and all the traffic you know road rage and all that business and you come up here take a deep breath and it's like, like this forest was probably here before that was there mm. and it just kind of gives you that perspective of that scale of time mm. and environment yeah so it's yeah, and I guess the perspective is calming. It's a calming influence. It's like, and it's kind of a retreat. So, you, but you, but you're still here. It's not like I've gone to a remote island. I'm in a little, tiny mini island within London, because London extends out 360 degrees. Whichever way you leave, you're straight back in it. So it's like a retreat within the chaos. It's it's interesting, and especially as you know, you, we're on the flight path at the moment, so you can hear the planes going over and everything. But there is something you can also hear the birds sort of in the trees. So it's this really interesting juxtaposition of old and new, urban and sort of pretend rural. And yeah. you know, in many respects, if you're a Londoner, I think we have a lot to be grateful for in that we've managed so far at least mm. to keep hold of these green mm. spaces. Mm. How important do you think they are in terms of people understanding? or trying to get to grips with what's happening in the environment and in a general sense? That's a good question. I think I think that obviously very important just physically in terms of like the trees and the air, pollution. In terms of awareness, I think, yeah, I think you see kids around here playing. I know, I know they do like nature walks. And I'm sure that interaction definitely, um, personally for me, being, in, being able to access these woods, maybe that's always given me that affinity to nature. I don't know. But I do know 
in terms of mental health, mm. like just on a basic level, in terms of reducing um, anxiety and stress, uh, it's, it's clinically proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that being in that being in nature, however, in any form, whether it's you know a river or a forest, it definitely has a calming influence. And I think the, the, the lifestyle you know is is so hectic mm-hmm. in London. I think having those spaces where you can just kind of ground yourself and, and just find a calmer wavelength is, is, is absolutely crucial but yeah well one of the reasons we started to do these um, podcasts was because there's there's this sort of expression of a desire in some of the what we might call mainstream environmental movements mm. say oh well you know there aren't enough people of color engaged in um, in these issues or sort of you know being active in this area and I think well, first of all, I'd like to hear your, your kind of response to mm-hmm. that. And then maybe we can talk through different ways of being active and yeah. engaged with environmental issues. Well, I think that statement, whether you know, people of colour are involved in this, I think that's only true of the Anglosphere. Mm. Which is the term I've only started reading, having read a book called The Great Derangement by Amitav Ghosh. He's, mm. oh, yes. he's a Bengali who now lives in India. He's fantastic right and he talks about this, this idea of the anglosphere and i think that only stands up within mm-hmm. the english-speaking world because mm-hmm. if you actually look at climate change activism and people actually trying to change it's actually indigenous peoples around the world mm-hmm. and the people who are living in it you know because like you know they've had to relocate their village because the rivers burst it back they're actually at the forefront and doing a lot of the legwork globally so i think it's only really true to say in the english-speaking world so the uk and america really mm-hmm. that perhaps you can say there is a lack of people of colour being involved in it. Well, I, don't, I think there's so many uh, so many reasons behind that. I yeah. don't know which one to pick, really, but I feel like there's a, definitely a perception that kind of green politics or green environmentalism is kind of a white middle class. It's kind of a luck. It's like an afterthought in terms of once, once you've sorted out yourself in terms of I've got a house and a job and all the rest of it, mm. then I've got time to worry about the environment. Yeah. And I guess the economics of it is, is that a lot of pe- for a lot of people, regardless of race, just like getting by is enough to deal with, let alone trying to save the planet. Like, it, it cuts across um, uh, social class, doesn't it? Yeah. That sort of interaction, because I guess a lot of white working class people yeah. don't feel it's exactly. you know the, the top of their priority yeah. to to engage in that very kind mm. of systematized mm. way. But I think I think what's interesting, especially in some of the discussions that we've been having. Uh, the different ways of engaging yes. the environment. Yeah. So, just to sort of rewind a little bit, yeah. what 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 got you interested in 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 this area of work? Well, I guess it's primarily through through my parents and where I've grown up. It's kind of it's, you know we're opposite the forest. We live in a wooden house surrounded by trees. So I guess my immediate environment has always been a green one. So I've kind of always been around it. It's not it's not alien to me in any way. And then I guess. My parents were just kind of people who are, you know, conscientious about this kind of thing. You know, they're in kind of some kind of humanism and mm-hmm. spiritual kind of footing. And nature is really important within that. Nature is crucial. You know, we can't live without, without clean air, clean water. None of us have got a chance. So I think they've always kind of, not overtly, not explicitly, but it's always been there in the background. And I guess... The fact that my parents built their own house, our house with their own hands, so that kind of do-it-yourself mentality. Yeah, I'd, I'd like to yeah. know a bit more about that yeah. because it seems, having just been there, it's an extraordinary place, not just your mm. dad's house, but that whole sort of, I was going to say settlement because it, it feels like it's 
you know, sort of just very different to the rest mm. of the mm. all the miles of Victorian terraces. Mm. Mm. So mm. can you tell us a little bit, it's Walter's Way, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's called Walter's Way. So back in the mid-80s, there was some enlightened kind of radical thinkers in the Ocean Council who got together with an architect Walter Siegel and decided they were going to allow residents or give, empower residents who are on the waiting list or in housing need to build their own home, essentially. Wow. And so it's all it's, it's timber frame. They did everything except for the foundations, which are on piles. It's really innovative projects. And my parents moved off of a council estate in Deptford, Crossfields Estate. Two older brothers were around there and getting to the point where they were overcrowded in, in the flat they were in. Mm-hmm. Managed to get on the waiting list. They were actually at the bottom of the waiting list. Thankfully, some people dropped out. Thankfully for us. <laughs> so they got bumped up and we got one of the last plots. Um, and I think that really set our family on solid ground from that moment on, really, being able to that autonomy and the power of having a home, quality home, which is full of light and surrounded by trees, has always provided us with a solid foundation. Yeah. Do you think, so was it originally set up as an environmentally minded project or was it purely and simply about getting people mm. from the housing list onto mm. into their own spaces and empowering them? It wasn't particularly environmentally focused. It was more about self-build and the fact that it's made of timber inevitably makes it a more sustainable instead of concrete because mm-hmm. of the, the embodied carbon like timber is just better to build with as long as you replant the trees but I don't think that was really the, the top and I think it's going back to your previous question I think this is an interesting point I think the environmental stuff mm. for want of a better word <laughs> is only really going to take off when it reaches that point where it makes economic sense mm. and actually the materials they chose it was an economic decision it's like this is a more efficient use of money in mm. terms of and not only that but also in terms of the people building their home it's, it's simpler to build a house if you're talking about bolting things together cutting wood as opposed to wet trade so the architect deliberately went for a thought process of eliminating the wet trades there's no brick no cement there's no plaster it's right. all materials right. you can buy at bulk at low cost from a local builders merchants mm-hmm. and you just literally worked with dimensions which are available 600 mil wide mm-hmm. and then you, you bolt it together as long as you his his motto was as long as you can cut a straight line and drill a straight hole you can build a house sort of more sophisticated lego in a but, way um, yeah that's how you because otherwise it'd be it. really daunting wouldn't it for, yeah. for people who not have that experience yeah but then there was a moment where you, your family decided well okay we're going to take this one step further yeah. in yeah. terms of its uh, yeah. in terms of it being environmentally mm-hmm. conscious can you Tell us a bit about what happened then. Yeah, well, basically, these buildings are amazing. They were built in the 80s, but in terms of energy performance, they're very bad, actually. Mm. <laughs> the insulation performance is terrible, right. very leaky. You have to turn the heating on high a lot. You know, some of them, you can see the gaps in the wall. Like, it's, you know, it gets cold in winter. So, right. so it was kind of a desire to want a more comfortable home. Like, so my dad did some research and, you know, he learned discovered ground source heat pumps but he realized if he's going to invest a lot of capital into installing a new heating system that's completely pointless if the insulation's terrible so and you hear this you know when people talk about sustainability in environment or in the built environment actually fixing the insulation is the most cost effective way yes. of improving the performance yeah. Yeah. so that was the first point so we re-insulated we took out all the walls all the floors, re-insulated the whole building and because the way it's built it's just bolts you can literally unbolt the walls mm-hmm re-insulate it, re- reconstruct and it, and yeah. it's like, it's not such a big deal as mm-hmm. to like knocking down a brick wall. So we did that, and then we put in triple glaze, made the investment in the ground source heat pump, there's underfloor heating, there's no radiators, it's kind of an ambient temperature. So that, the combined effect of all that work is just, you know, 
radically improve the performance of the home in terms of energy. And because it's a ground source heat pump, it means we're not using gas to heat the building. I mean, it does require electricity to run the compressor, but it's a payoff, and that's why we've got the PV. So we've got photovoltaic cells, so they offset and they're solar added. panels. Yeah, yeah. So we're using the solar panels. They offset the extra because we're using more electricity now to run the ground source heat pump. Right. But they offset that. So it's the all the combination of all of those interventions creates a warmer home, a more efficient home. Energy bills are slashed, and we're more reliant on renewable energy. So, so that that's really interesting. And again, it goes back to that point you were making about how you need to sort of feel settled and have your own space and be able to make those kinds of interventions. Mm. You know, you, you can't sort of do it in a vacuum, as it were, and, and also that it makes economic sense. Mm. So so I think I think that's really interesting. But I think also it's um, for you, I'm thinking about you being brought up within that kind of context mm. so mm. that it's almost like naturalized mm. for you mm. to be thinking does that spill over into other areas of your life and and the way in which you kind of live your life that sort of environmental consciousness absolutely i mean i try i try my best i mean i'm not i'm not no angel you know mm. I've, I've got the old plastic bag knocking around the house and i drive mm. get on planes i'm not by any means some kind of exemplar environmentalist i don't think anybody is actually in, in spite of what they might say yeah okay. but i think in terms of an, an outlook and a consciousness definitely you know i mostly eat plant-based i'm not a strict vegan mm. i'll eat a bit of chicken and fish mm. eggs when i want to mm-hmm. but definitely has fed into and i guess it, it's more it's deeper than that i think it's kind of like but your philosophy outlook approach to what you want to do with your life you know and i've always wanted to be part of change i've mm. always wanted to be part of a movement that it's going to change the world. And I guess as a Londoner, the project I set up was about how can London as a community, how can we be more sustainable? How can we, you know, what's what's London's response to climate change as a community? You know, we live next to the river, Thames barriers at capacity, rising mm-hmm. sea levels ain't good for the city. Mm-hmm. You know, food scarcity. I mean, I read a report when I was kind of starting up my project that, you know, if, you know, we have a cut-off of oil supply. So in the 70s, we had problems with oil. Mm-hmm. And in the early 2000s, when Blair was in power, we had an issue with oil mm-hmm. and some kind of industrial action. And the chief executive wrote to Tony Blair and said, within 48 hours, there's going to be no foods on the yeah. shelf. Yeah. If, the, if, the, if, the, if the oil supply chain is cut off, it would take two weeks for there to be food riots mm-hmm. in London. It's on a knife edge, yeah, isn't it, really? We feel yeah. removed from it. Mm-hmm. But we're not really. And it's not. If you look at geopolitics with Russia, Iran... Iraq, China. all them places, mm-hmm. it's not so far-fetched to imagine a scenario whereby oil supply chains are disrupted mm-hmm. beyond a two-week period. Mm-hmm. And it has happened in our mm-hmm. history and could happen again. So that was kind of one of the sow those seeds. But yes, I guess as a Londoner, I've always thought about the bigger picture. Where do we fit in in terms of the globe? So there's two areas of work I want to ask you about now. One, one is your music mm-hmm. and uh, the other is this huge project which you've initiated and been a part of that does try to, try to kind of make some of those ideas concrete. Mm-hmm. Oh, not concrete. <laughs> Wrong yeah. metaphor. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying. Make yeah. them solid. Yeah. So yeah. can you tell us a bit about that, the, the project, that big project that you're engaged with at the moment? Yeah. Well, I guess it started with the music. Mm. So kind of do it in that order. Just mm. chronological purpose. So I guess, yeah, me and my brother's a musician, mm. always played music, perform around London, around Europe, around the world. Um, and I guess kind of our artists, or, or our main inspirations have always been kind of people like Fela Kuti, Bob Marley, mm. and this idea of music having a message. Mm-hmm. And so 
as brothers, our upbringing, being exposed to these ideas of kind of self-build, autonomy, kind of civil power, environmentalism, that was always part of the message of what we were pushing in terms of people taking the power that we have and mm. to change the world, essentially, in a sentence. And I guess that was always part of our identity as a band, United Vibrations. And I guess we always... We always we reached a point where we're like, we don't just want to sing about this. We don't just want to talk about this. We want to do something beyond being musicians, which actually puts these ideas into practice. Was, was there one particular incident or event or person that, that made you think, okay, this is the moment to do this now? Because lots of people, you know, in the arts and creative mm. industries do mm. have uh, quite a strong sense of um, social injustice and wanting mm. to write some of those songs, but sometimes it doesn't get any further than that. Yeah. So, yeah. so what what was it that made you really take the plunge? Yeah. Well, I guess I guess my dad and my mum have always been doers, and mm. taking from their example, my dad particularly is just the kind of guy to get up and go like, you've got an idea, you got a passion, do it. Don't dilly dally, get on with it. And I guess that's always been part of our makeup as a family. And I guess getting to that age. I went to university to study music and I just kind of got there and was really actually disappointed in terms mm. of throughout education I'm one of them people in school who's always asking questions and like and I always, but I ask questions to the point where the teacher's like well that's not on the curriculum when you get to next year you can explore that and it got to the point where they always deferred I said oh, that's not on the curriculum you can explore that in university and I got to university and I got there and I actually found the same thing happened that's not really what we're here mm. to discuss kind of thing and yeah. I just kind of got disillusioned and I thought you know what I'm sick of writing essays. Like, I don't want to write this essay. The person marking it, I can tell they don't really want to read it or mark it. Mm-hmm. Who am I doing this for? Mm-hmm. And actually, at the time, my mum got breast cancer. Mm-hmm. It was one of them life-changing events. It's like, you kind of face with your own mortality mm-hmm. or your family's mortality, the mortality mm-hmm. of people around you. I mean, like, well, I ain't got time to waste. Like, mm-hmm. I could be gone tomorrow. What am I waiting for? I, I, need to, I need to do the things I'm passionate. I need to do them now. The things I know, I, the things I know I need to do or want to do, I need to do them now. And if I don't, what am I waiting for? Why are you going to postpone it? So it's just that kind of, I just decided now is the time. Let's do it, you know? So we set up a record label, community interest company. We said, right, all the profits are going to go towards community land trust. At that point, I lived in a cooperative. I knew about cooperatives. I found out about community land trusts as a movement towards kind of reclaiming community assets and using them for community benefit. And said, so, right, let's do this. We're going to build sustainable, affordable housing. We're going to build a community. Um, so the profits from the record label went to create the community land trust, to get it going. We started raising shares through non-profit community shares. And we just started talking to people. So so how was that received? Because sometimes people can be a bit sniffy about mm. artists trying to do do mm. things. It's mm. as if that isn't your province. You know, you're mm. supposed to be playing music. What are mm. you doing this mm. kind of social clap-traps for? Yeah, and also, yeah. I'm wondering, did you communicate this very strongly to your audience? Was it, Or was yeah. it something you just left it to them to find or not? It's Sorry, two big questions yeah, there. Yeah, I mean, just to take the second question. A bit, I think at the time, it was very much like we ran our own events, we released our own records. It was like totally upfront and viewed within what we were doing the small print it was there the mm-hmm. big print it was there talking about it we're like we're literally up getting up getting up on stage and telling people to sign up become a right, member right like, you can become a so member now explicit then. like join yeah, yeah. kind of thing so yeah absolutely but i guess as our careers develop i think there is a resistance within the music industry in britain probably in america too but probably lesser actually i think more so in britain that people don't like the idea of mixing politics because people mm. People bracket all this stuff. I don't think it's politics, mm. but there's a perception that this stuff is in the politics bracket. And 
people don't like politics and music mixing together. And actually, mm. in terms of within the industry, outside the industry, it's a thing. But within the English-speaking music industry, they don't like it, actually. Is it, that's, that's the truth. They yeah, don't like it. Yeah, it's, it's kind of interesting because that happens quite a lot. Um, so with football, which I like, you mm. know, it's, oh, you can't mix, fo- mix football and politics or you can't mix mm. music and pol- politics. Mm. So I'm the opposite to you. I think everything is political. Mm. With a small plea, it's not about party politics. Mm. It's about the choices that we think we're making mm. and the kind of constraints around those, those um, choices are almost invariably political. So I never kind of quite get why people should feel so nervous about having... Mm. Uh, that message in the music, and if mm. you think about hymns, very well, strong abs- message. Absolutely, I mean, absolutely, what would yeah. be stronger than you know? Yeah, and I that. guess that that was always our perspective as musicians, because our heroes, our idols, the people mm. we looked up to, were about something. Mm. You know, whether that's Bob Marley or Felicu, or even people like Ali Fakatore. You know, he put his money in to build a well for his yeah. community and the desert, yeah. so they got water. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I see where you're going with politics, but I don't see that as being political. I see that as him of service to his community. Yes, and yeah. actually, if you look through the music traditions in Africa, Caribbean, Latin America, other parts of the world. Musicians are expected to be of service to the community. They're expected to deal with these topics. There's an expectation on them to do that. And actually, if they don't, so, you know, what's going on? Whereas here, I feel like it's the opposite. People don't want you to mix that stuff. It's it's, it's very much, it's the entertainment Make me dance. <laughs> I'm drunk. I want to dance. Don't give me all that political shit. So, but, but going back to the question, I, yeah. I think we found with our audience is that people came to us because they were open to that. Yeah. And actually, didn't want. And actually, we managed to build up a following of people who did want to be at a gig and actually hear this stuff mm. and be involved in something. And mm. I think that was one of the successful things we managed to do. Is actually create a community of people who wanted to be active. Mm. So it's interesting you use that example mm. of the musician who put his profits into a well, not mm. literally. Well, yes, kind of literally, but in a different sort of way. Um, but so to me, that is political yeah. because yeah. the government should be doing that. So yeah. we shouldn't be depending, or the, those communities shouldn't be dependent on somebody making money through his creativity to supply what is a basic essential of life. But I think he's coming from a part of the world where the government or the nation state is a relatively new concept. Oh, yeah, 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 so yeah I, I appreciate like, that. And if you look through most of our history, it is a relatively new concept. So actually mm. doing things for yourself, and I think as part of the ethos of what we're trying to do is mm. actually, this is, this is one of the, going back to your earlier question, what made you want to do something? It's actually the realisation that actually when you're talking about climate change, and not only climate change, there's a few other issues, climate change is one of them. Mm. I think culturally the British, this is my summary, we're yeah. waiting for the market to do something or the state to do something. And my feeling mm. is that you're going to be waiting forever. Mm. You're going to be waiting until it's too late. Mm. The market mm. has proven itself not to be, be able to move on this. Mm. Like, look at the electric car. We knew about that from decades ago. It's only now they want to bring it out because it suits their interest yeah, now. Yeah, absolutely. But they could have bought it out a long time of ago. Of course. And, the same, and to be honest, I think the government's guilty of the same thing. Mm-hmm. I feel like if you look at progress, want of a better word, or, mm. you know, innovation, our society may be a century or more behind our science. And actually, if you look at the vested interest, the mechanisms of change, they're too slow. I'm not, I'm not going to wait for the government to do it. Mm. I'm, we're going to do it ourselves. Yeah. And actually, my opinion is we'll get it done quicker and we'll do it better. Yeah, no, I don't disagree with you on that. But I suppose, ideally, I mean, the market has got no interest in anything apart from itself, it seems to me, is of making money of profit for shareholders. That's kind of the driver of the market. It, does, it doesn't have any kind of morality or, or ethics behind it. But I guess, I suppose what I feel is, and again, it might be, it, it, well, not might be, but it is due to this kind of way in which we've been brought up, the cultural and social context within which we live, 
it's like I fear for people who who are now in positions where they don't feel that they have any power, where they feel mm. alienated. Mm. Going back to mm. what we were talking mm. about before, mm. you know, the people who who you know, too busy trying to work out how they're going to make their money stretch to put decent food on the plate and, and that of their families to think about the environment and environmental mm. activism. Mm. So so where does that kind of leave us? Because are you saying that it's down to individuals to kind of kickstart this? Or, or, or what, what is it that you would want to happen, mm. particularly as we look ahead if that's possible mm. to do at the moment mm. as, as we look ahead and try and work out where we might possibly be in the next 10 or so years you know what, what, what would you see what would you like to see happening yeah what well, do you think can happen yeah it's, it's a good question i feel the word i'm going to take out you just said is power uh-huh and i feel like i like to frame it through power because i it's, i feel like this kind of kind of shows up the different camps and i feel like mm our concept of power is not conducive to change in that we perpetuate the idea. I'm not mm. saying it's right or wrong. Yeah, yeah. It's an idea. We make it right. We make it real or not real, mm. whether or not we, we believe in it. But the idea is that we don't have power mm. and all the power lies elsewhere, i.e. bankers and politicians. Mm. They're the main scapegoats. Mm. So it's their fault. I think that model of viewing the world as a vehicle for change is, is, use, is not useful. Mm. And mm. actually, I think for us to change, for the future, for us to t- t- take a different trajectory, a different path, it's not going to happen until we realize we are powerful. And when I say we, I mean communities, individuals, mm. ind- independent of state, independent of the market, families, mm. a street, like a community. We actually, we have a lot more power than we are aware of. And our, the fact that we're not aware of that power means we don't wield that power, mm. which means those places which where there is clearly a lot of power centralized, mm. They're un they're unregulated. They're not no one's got the to they're not what's the word. I don't know. You like, get something to yourself, you mean you get self interest. You're not like correcting it. It's like oh. because that's the space because we're not activating our civil power, mm. they they can do what they want. They can get away with it. They can you know, they can bail out the banks. No one's gonna say nothing. They can they can dump a load of oil. No one ain't gonna say nothing because we're not we're not keeping them in check. Because we're not using the power we have. So so how do how do we so how would you ideally like to see that power in, in the communities that resides in communities in families and in individuals how would you like to see that realised over the next few years how would it manifest itself well it's so many ways I mean mm. just thinking can... specifically in relation to environmental okay well stuff. I'll take plastic bags I mean yeah. it's like we've known from day mm. like people are getting happy that we've brought this legislation Kenya banned it a long time ago like we've known for a long time why is it taking this long? That's ridiculous. I don't know. It, it comes down to your model of change, your theory of mm. change. And I feel like the dominant models of change we have at our disposal, okay, elect so-and-so, that's going to change it. Mm. I don't believe that. Mm. I, it will help. Mm. I'm not dismissing it. Mm. It will help. Mm. It's not going to solve it or, you know, get loads of money. It will help. It's on its own. It's not going to do it. It's, it's all of these things. So it's how you spend your money. It's how you talk. Where I've been trying to summarize it lately is culture, because you can talk about the economics, politics, you know, the theology, mm. philosophy, all of these different things. But ultimately, it comes down to a culture, and our culture, for whatever reason or society, mm. is particularly within urban areas, more like you know, is is cut off from nature. We're not. Mm. We don't think about our systems are built in disregard and in spite of natural cycles. So you look at the hydrosphere, or you know. 
any of the natural side. What do they call it in Sweden? There's the the nine planetary boundaries: so the nitrogen, carbon, hydrogen, all these things. Mm. It's like we're not aligning ourselves with this. We're, we're like in conflict. That's what I'm looking for. We're right. in conflict with them. It's like it's like it's like man against nature, right. man taming nature, or right. humans. Yes, yes. Man and women. Well, I all think I us. think that's been um that has been a model, and it's almost like seeing trying to draw out from what you're saying is like a what I would express as a trained helplessness sometimes, so that you well, kind yeah. of, but it, and it's breaking that cycle, isn't it? And and seeing yourself as as a as an empowered person without somebody having to give you that. Yeah, power. we have power, man. Mm-hmm. We have, and I mean, obviously, it's different. Some people, it's and it's. But I guess it's how you build power. And I guess what I'm getting at, or reason my life power is community organizing, building relational power. And not being afraid of power. I think often you talk about power and they're like, oh, I don't, I don't like the word power. But it's yeah. like, I mean, because power is, is how you change. You're not mm. going to change. You need power to change the world. Mm. And I feel like we need to wake up to the power we do have within our relationships with people, the money we spend. You know, like we shouldn't be going to certain places and giving them our money. Like, well, you know, <laughs> I mean, really, uh, don't get me started on that one. Because, you know, there, there's a situation where I think I'm going to end up not being able to eat buy any clothes or do anything because you know what you find out about particular companies but it is i think i think it's very very complex to to see how we've got into the position that we're in well i don't know I, it is complex but, but it's going i want to make one more point yeah i feel like culture what the, the point i didn't make culture is we live in a culture where we're just waiting for a hero and want to blame the scapegoat yeah yeah and yeah. what i want to get as culture you need to make the step there ain't no hero yeah there ain't no scapegoat yeah, there never was, there never is. It's all of us. We're all in it together, and there's only us. It's only we, and it's what we choose. And if you're waiting for some savior, hero, it's going to be too late. Ah, and if you're willing to blame it all on the scapegoat, you're not taking responsibility. We're all responsible. And that's responsibility because power, responsibility. Power without responsibility is how we've gotten to where we are now. I would say. But Kareem, we've now come to the moment where we plant the seed, which is a lovely metaphor, and it's also quite a nice thing to do. And um, I hope we'll receive some photographs from you when it's germinating and (laughs) when it becomes, when you harvest. But meanwhile, as you're planting, as you're putting the seed in, I don't know how easy it's going to be with your frozen hands. My hands are kind of, they're not, oh, did I just do one? That was perfect. Look at that tiny little seed, isn't it? I think you just drowned the seed there with that water. (laughs) Um, But never mind, it'll burst through, I'm sure. Do you want to say something about the seed? Do you know... We've got a flax seed here. Mm. I think flax is a very important crop going forward. So I think you can get all kinds of health benefits from it in terms of the diet. It can produce a nice oil. I think producing plant-based oils is going to, is something I'm very interested in. Ongoing. You can make, you can make um, fabric from it, can't you? Flax as well. Can't, doesn't, doesn't it become kind of linen? The, yeah. the, the strands. So, I, so yeah. I, I see a pair of jeans, a bottle of oil, <laughs> and, <laughs> yeah. and some seeds to put on your cereal in a few cool. months' time. Yeah, no, yeah. well, not quite months. <laughs> I think I'm sort of being a bit impatient there <laughs> at some point. Kareem, it just to me to say thank you so much for having that conversation with me and cool. introducing me to cool. a part of South London yeah. that I've never seen before cool. Cool. and also to that amazing house. Cool, yeah, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you once again, Karim. 
To understand Karim's approach to sustainability, it's really important to understand the nature of the house in which he was raised and the influence of his parents. This is particularly interesting because, as Karim argues, to say that that there are not enough people of colour actively engaged in environmental sustainability, to simply say that is to ignore the reality of life in the global south from where many of our communities have migrated. Housing is a very immediate, very real thing. And I don't mean just in terms of having adequate practical facilities like clean running water, but also in terms of things like, for example, how can self-building give a community a sense of pride and a sense of autonomy? Now, that sense of pride and autonomy is clearly not the case with a good deal of housing developments. And what Karim is trying to do is to follow a different path that has embedded within it a process that is about equitable power relations between communities and housing authorities. Thanks for listening to The Colour Green. Check out the show notes for important links to Julie's bicycle and our guest's work. If you like the series, please like or rate us on whatever platform you're listening on. To stay updated about our work in arts, sustainability and climate justice, follow us on Twitter at Julie's Bicycle.